Hear now the word of the Lord. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Your word is a, is a blessing, O oh God. Help us to hear it clearly today. Protect us from distraction, Lord, the distraction of our own hearts. The distraction of the world around us, Lord. Protect us from error. Feed us today and help us to think clearly about the call that you give to elders in your church, especially in our text today, Lord, to pastors. Make us all receptive to how your word impacts each of us. Help us to love your church well. Help us to encourage your church to be what you have designed it to be. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you uh, listen to the many voices that are out there, there is no shortage of people willing to give their opinions on what a pastor should do and what is most important for a pastor to do. Uh, some of those opinions are good. Some of those opinions are, are just dead wrong. Uh, there are some who think of the pastor sort of like an operations manager of a church, right? Uh, people who think that the pastor is sort of like a CEO uh, who comes to the elders of the church, if the church even has elders, and his job is to vision cast. His job is to be like the CEO. He is the Steve Jobs of the local church. I'm just going to see the future and tell you all what it looks like, right? Um, and, and just like a business has shareholders who demand to see growth, for some, the church is supposed to be like that. If it's not growing, it's shrinking something. There are others who think the pastor should be the, the lead social agent in changing the world, changing the community. Right? How can you say that you, you love people if you're not focused on leading a, a revolution that's meant to turn the world upside down by impacting the political world? We see men who are called reverends, called pastors. They're known primarily not for preaching the word, but for giving political stump speeches in pulpits, uh, appearing on stage with politicians, trying to convince members of the church or those in the broader culture that this or that leader will help bring the kingdom of God here on earth if only we would vote a certain way. And of course, the, these visions of the pastorate make practical sense, right? You could imagine how someone with good intentions would call upon a pastor to do this. You could imagine someone saying, my view of the world is loving to my neighbor, and it all gets couched in those terms of neighborly love. Or, or maybe you would reason, well, it would be loving my neighbor for this church to grow in its influence. Therefore, the CEO model of the pastorate is loving. It's easy to imagine how someone beginning with good intentions can arrive at a conclusion like this. So the pastor is in this delicate place of trust where he likely could use his influence to change the minds of people. Those who 
uh, really like to see things done. You really like to see things accomplished, like to see lots of hearts and minds changed all at once. You could see how they would be so tempted to take up the pastorate as a tool to be wielded in the service of some other agenda. Of course, you would go to scripture in vain for a directive for pastors to serve as CEOs or, or political revolutionaries. There's one category of opinion that's out there, though, right? The pragmatic view. That's what this is. And, and I would say for most Christians, though, the problem is not that they have the wrong vision of what a pastor is supposed to be and do. I think instead the problem can be more subtle. It isn't that they don't know what a pastor does, uh, but they want the pastor to put his attention disproportionately on some things rather than the things he's called to put his attention on. So it's not that they want the pastor to abandon his job description and write a brand new one. Um, But there's sometimes pressure for the pastor to lean on some parts of the ministry of the church. So that he's primarily focused in an area where God hasn't designed for him to be. Uh, Let me see if I can uh, illustrate this. You know, for some there's a disappointment. Why isn't the pastor more interested in my project? Um, Why isn't this part of the church that's really important to me more important to the pastor? Um, Why isn't this event that the church does higher on his priority list? Uh, Why isn't the pastor, why isn't the session more engaged in in some parts of the church, right? I wish they would put more time and energy into this other thing that really is important to me. Um, Why doesn't the pastor get his hands in more things in the community? And people all over America wonder this about their churches, right? Uh, Because think of all the things I just mentioned. None of those things are wrong. None of those things are sinful. None of those things are bad. It's not sinful to to want the pastor to do this or that. And the pastor in the session should care about those things. So this isn't like the pragmatic view. It's not like if you followed it, you would just go completely off the rails. Um, You could imagine all of the true and good things that any pastor, this pastor included, could do more of. Every week I think of the things I could do more of and that I could do better. Um, And so usually that resonates with me when someone says, why don't you do more of this? And I think, why don't I do more more of that? I should do more of that. Um, But if if someone comes to me and says, I would like you to do more of this or, or, or to do that better, my response is usually not to disagree. Um, because we could always do things more and we could always do them more excellently. There's no doubt about it. Um, I could always give more of my attention to some aspect of the church than I currently do. But at the same time, I think, I think Paul recognizes in our passage today that there are trade-offs that happen when we give our attention and energy to something, right? He, he wants him to put his focus in this specific place. The implication here is that our attention and our energy can be diverted from something so that something else can happen. Um, I think this is why Paul tells Timothy what he should give the majority of his attention to this morning. Uh, think of someone's uh, attention span sort of like uh, a pipe through which flows all the things that somebody tries to do. Or better yet, think of it in terms of bandwidth. I don't know if uh, technology is such that I think we all know what it's like to fight with a router. In my, in my house, if you try to watch some streaming service downstairs, there's going to be a howling child upstairs wondering why his Fortnite game is not playing very well. Um, and that's because we have a router, and when you do run a certain amount of things, eventually your router starts to chug, all right? 
And think of our own attention like that. Think of our own attention spans like that, right? Where we can only do so much. Only so many things can run for a while before they all start to slow down. And you start to see the excellence drop off. You see, all of us have things that we need to decide what we will focus on, what will be uh, the majority of our attention. And so um, you can imagine young Timothy. You can imagine young Timothy, all these voices in Timothy's ears thinking, I know what should happen here. Even in Ephesus, you know there were people who had opinions about ways that maybe things could be done more excellently in the church. Um, Even back then, people had opinions. You see it all over in the book of Acts. People have plenty of opinions. And yet Paul's Paul's voice rings through all of, of these other voices with this one specific message, this message he wants to carry above all the others. And it's the message that our text gives us today. Three things that Paul tells Timothy he must do. He says, Timothy, you must be devoted to scripture. You must be devoted to service and you must be devoted to scrupulosity. So this is what happens when you try to alliterate. You end up using a word like scrupulosity. All right. <laughs> don't be careful what you ask for if you want alliteration. You know? But well, if you don't know what scrupulosity is, that's the that's the hook. That's what's going to grab you till the end. The, let's go through all three, though. First, first, Paul tells Timothy to be devoted to Scripture in verse 13. You see it right here. It's, it's just plain. As soon as we start, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So Paul tells Timothy, he uses the word devote here. He says, this word is a word for something that you, that you care most about about this thing that you prioritize, this thing that you put at the top of your list. It is something that you give your attention to, something you're alerted to. It's the thing that you are supposed to care a lot about. This thing you, well, you devote yourself to it, right? That's what he wants him to do. He He wants Timothy to be occupied with this. In other words, keeping if we keep our nose in the text and don't try to go somewhere else, what does Paul say that a pastor is supposed to be all about what matters most what is that what is the bandwidth of the router of Timothy's life supposed to be dominated by well Paul's answer before any other is presented is that pastors are to be mostly occupied with what he calls the public reading exhortation and preaching of scripture That's the exact phrase that Paul uses here. The public reading, exhortation, and teaching of scripture. So this means that Timothy is supposed to mostly spend his time preparing to preach and teach the word of God to God's people and then executing on that preparation. So I can tell you at least what that looks like in my own life. For my part, I try to very intentionally go about the week uh, thinking about the sermon that I'm writing and actually writing the sermon. So that's the majority of what I try to spend my own thought time, preparation time, time of prayer and scripture reading doing. So for me, sermon preparation is a whole week long process where you're chewing on the text. You're thinking about what it says. You're praying. You're asking God to help this text mean something to you so that when you go to preach it, it's obvious to the listeners that it's affected you and that you're trying to get across to them the way it's affected you and Lord willing, it'll affect them too. So at a certain point, my own, my own method is to write 
the main point and the outline and then struggle to make sure everything that's being said is in the service of that main point. Making sure that everything that we say makes the main point come out and make sense to you as the congregation. Um, but, you know, thinking about a text is one thing. Speaking clearly about it is, is something else entirely. Um, so, so what this means is that if I, even if I'm not sitting at, at a keyboard and with my face in, in a book, I, I'm mulling over. I'm occupying myself with the text. So I'm thinking and I'm praying. I'm asking God, you know, what is Paul calling for here? He's calling for the pastor mainly to be thinking about this thing that is intended by God's design to be the spiritual food that you as a congregation are ordained to receive each week. That's his plan. His plan is that this is getting baked back in the kitchen and then it's being brought out and then it's being served to you. Uh, In scripture, you find this incredible emphasis on the importance of the public reading of God's word. One of the most profound examples of this is in the book of Nehemiah. So in the book of Nehemiah, God's people are standing for the reading of God's word. And by the way, they didn't stand for the reading of the word because they were worshiping the word or or because, heaven forbid, they were worshiping a book or a scroll. They were showing attention to God's word. That's why they were standing for the reading of God's word. They'd been starving to hear it. They'd been listening to men's words for years and years and years. And here they are now, and they need to be reformed. They need to be changed. And so when God speaks to them, what do they do? They stand to hear it. And this is part of the reason why when we read the scripture here in the mornings, I ask you to stand for the word of God. Um, The biblical example here is for us to stand for the reading of the word. Why? Because this isn't like man's words. These are God's words. But also, it wasn't just publicly read. Here's what happens in Nehemiah. One of the, I have a verse that's taped to my computer at home, and it, it's the verse from Nehemiah chapter 8, and it says that they didn't just explain, that they didn't just read the text, but they explained it and gave a sense of its meaning. They gave a sense of its meaning. I, I sat in on sermons where I got to the end and went, I don't know what that was about. I probably preached some of those. Um, where you get to the end, and you're like, I, don't, I feel really bad. I feel like something's wrong with me that I didn't understand that. I think that's a failure on the minister's part if people come away knowing less about the text than they knew before they got there. Um, but that's what, that's what happens in Nehemiah. It says that they gave a sense of the meaning of the text. So they're reading it, and then they're saying, this is what it means. And then they're reading the text, and then they're explaining what it means. This is in the Old Testament that they're doing this. This is sort of the prototype for New Testament preaching. And so you can imagine... Uh, This sort of reading and preaching and teaching and explaining of the word is the plan that God has. It's the way that God intends to feed people's souls. And and it's interesting because everybody hears that same word read. And I can't tell you how many times afterwards someone came to me and said, I heard this thing that I needed to hear. And I think, oh, actually I wasn't preaching on that, but I'm glad you heard it. I'm glad that it was there. You know, the Holy Spirit takes the thing that the person needs to hear and it applies it to the heart. The same message very different delivery, you know, very different reception. So you can, you can imagine all the good things a pastor can do with his time. And yet the bulk of his attention needs to go to this. It needs to go to this. It's not, I'm not just saying that because that's my practice. My, my practice is this because I think God's word says this. So because here's the, here's the issue. The preaching of the word is a spiritual lifeblood of the church. Uh, 
By God's design, here's what happens. The Spirit illuminates the text as it's preached so that you hear an idea directly from God in the text. And the Holy Spirit takes that text and he delivers it to your soul and he applies it in a way that maybe the pastor didn't think about. Or maybe something that you didn't understand before and now your soul is being enriched. You receive the idea and now your heart's being changed. Now you want to be different. So that when temptation comes your way, God's plan is this, that the word of God is delivering arrows that can be put into your quiver that you can fire at the enemy. Or so that when discouragement comes your way, you've been fed with promises and promises so that you won't go hungry. Or so that when you're tempted to feel directionless, you're going to be reminded of the positive calling that God has given you as a Christian. All of these things are brought to you by what Paul is talking about here today. They're brought to you by having someone who is devoted each week to making sure that you hear from God. There are a lot of things you need, but this is the most important. The pastor needs to be devoted to the scriptures. Now, second, Paul tells Timothy he needs to be devoted to service. What do I mean by that? Well, if again, this, maybe this is the fault of trying to alliterate. Uh, but if I could put it another way, in verses 14 to 15, look what he does. He reminds Timothy of his own ordination to the ministry. And then he tells him that when he was ordained to this service, he received a gift from God that is his responsibility to keep alive. Uh, Listen to it again in verses 14 and 15. He says, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Paul tells Timothy not to neglect the gift. He uses this word gift here, and I want your eyes to settle on that word just for a moment because I'm going to talk about it. The word here in the Greek, and I don't try to do Greek too much because it just sounds like you're trying to be fancy. It's the word charisma. You've probably heard the word charisma before. Or maybe you've heard the word charismatic before. The word just means gifted. A charisma is a gift. Uh, oftentimes the New Testament translates the word charisma as, as grace. So he's saying Paul received a charisma. He received a grace. He received a gift when the other elders came around, laid hands on him, and prayed for him. So Timothy received this grace. He And he says, when did it happen? He says that he received this gift in the moment when the council of elders laid their hands on Timothy. Um, By the way, the text, if you were just going to translate it literally, it says, when the presbytery laid their hands on you. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm legally obligated. I think it's in my vows. I was just to point out every time the word presbytery gets used. Um, The ESV translates it as council of elders, but the word here is just presbytery. So it says, when the presbytery laid their hands on Timothy, he received this gift. Um, when I was ordained, just as an example, this is exactly what happened. It's word for word exactly what happened. I was surrounded. I was in Pearl, Mississippi. I was surrounded by a commission of men representing the presbytery, and they all came uh, at the proper moment in the service, and they laid hands on me, and they and they prayed for me. And this is, this is still what we do. It's been 2,000 years, and this is what we do. 
exactly as Paul speaks of it here. Now you might wonder, why do we lay hands on somebody? Is that a magic thing? Do we think there's something magical about laying hands on someone? No. The laying on of hands in scripture normally relates to a transfer of responsibility, right? So, so when you're looking in the Old Testament, for example, and an, off, an off, offering is given, what do they do? They lay their hand on the head of the offering. What are they doing? They're, they're transferring responsibility, in this case for their sin, to the animal. Uh, the high priest laid his hand on the head of the scapegoat before he would send it out into the wilderness, so in the Old Testament, and you would lay hands on others, a man would lay hands on his son and pray for him, for example. You see that with Jacob and Esau. So in the New Testament, here's what happens. You still see the laying on of hands taking place. In Acts chapter 6, we've already talked about this. I won't belabor that, but the apostles create the office of deacon. They examine the men. Uh, the congregation votes on them. And then it says the elders prayed and laid their hands on them. So it's the first recorded New Testament ordination service. Uh, it's possible that the laying on of hands is supposed to convey the, the responsibility of the office as though they didn't have that responsibility. And then once the hands were laid on them, they did have the responsibility. But here's what's so striking. Paul says that when someone is ordained, there's a gift. He says there's a grace that comes with that ordination. Uh, I think this is something that is very neglected in our own day. The idea that there is something that God gives to us that we need when we're ordained. Ordination is public recognition of God's call by the church. It's not primarily a human act. It is, it is a divine act. This is why ordination must be attended with prayer. It's why ordination doesn't just happen when we lay hands, but we pray. Because ordination is something that's done by God. Um, without prayer, you, it wouldn't be ordination. Without laying on of hands, there'd be no transfer of responsibility for the office of elder or deacon. Um, it is the combination of these things. It's the laying on of hands by the elders. It's calling upon God to give grace that makes ordination what it is. It's the public recognition of someone called to an office of the church by God. Uh, I struggled over whether to say this next part, but I'm going to say it. Uh, there are churches... Even in our own presbytery and even in our own denomination, that I am very sad to say there is, there is an, a need for an appreciation of ordination to be recaptured. Uh, there are churches which intentionally withhold ordination from those who are qualified to serve in office. I'll even be more specific. There are churches where deacons have not been ordained at all. There are people called deacons, and they're not ordained. Um, for many of these churches, the motivation is they are convinced that women should also be able to be deacons. And so if women can't be deacons, then they will have no deacons. They will call them deacons, but they will not ordain them. Now, we already talked about women deacons uh, back in January uh, with connection to Timothy. We drew from the text and tried to show why it is the office of deacon is not open to women. But, but here's what I find troubling. We have churches where people are serving functionally as deacons. They're, they're doing the work of deacons. They're caring for the church's finances. They're caring for the building. They're doing all the things you would expect deacons to do. They're being put on the church website as deacons. And they're not ordained. And they haven't been publicly recognized as deacons. Or at least not in the way that Paul talks about here. 
And so well, here's the problem. If Paul is right that there is a gift that comes with ordination, then that gift is being withheld from people who are functioning in a way that they need the gift. They need the gift. Um, they're asking people to, to serve in the role without the blessings needed for the role. And that is what concerns me. And so to my mind, this would be like sending someone on a long journey without shoes. Or asking someone to walk a long way and not giving them a water bottle. Not giving them this thing that they would need. Now I feel really strongly about this subject and I've decided to speak publicly about it just because of this. I sense my own inadequacy for this calling apart from the help of God. Every single day I need his help. And so it breaks my heart to think that there are officers or people serving as officers at least or serving in ways that look exactly like officers in churches where the churches have so far been robbing these officers of this gift that Paul talks about here. Whatever this gift is that, that Timothy received, it's being withheld from some people. They're asking, being asked presumably to serve under their own strength without the grace of God that comes with ordination. Now, I'm not saying that without ordination, somebody doesn't have the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that these people who are doing all of this service don't have the Holy Spirit. What I think Paul is saying, though, is that Timothy had the Holy Spirit before he was ordained, yet God give, gave him some other needed gift when he was ordained that he didn't have before. And I can't pinpoint in Timothy's life exactly what that gift is, but Paul seems to know what it is, and he seems to think that Timothy knows what it is. Now, you might ask, what kind of a gift does a person receive when they're ordained? That's harder to answer because it's not in the text. So I'm not going to try to venture uh, a guess. But you could imagine it has something to do with the service that he's called to. Something that he perhaps didn't have before. Something that was lacking in his character that now he has. Because these men prayed for him and laid hands on him. And because God ordained him. I can tell you this. No elder or deacon fat matter can possibly live up to God's calling and expectations for his office. Apart from the grace of the Holy Spirit. I can tell you that 100% for sure. Ordination is the public recognition by God's church that a man's been called to an office of the church. And that's attended with the laying on of hands by the elders. And it's attended by prayer. In ordination, what are we doing? We're calling upon God to bless this man for the calling that he has that's been put upon him. And we're asking God to work through him. And so what I'm trying to say is that ordination is a blessing. Paul is telling us that ordination is a blessing. And I hope the church will recapture a sense of the importance of ordination. It is more than just an official pronouncement. Uh, it's more than just an announcement. It's more than just hiring someone to perform a task or a job. It's something that God does through the instruments of laying on of hands and, and prayers of the elders. But Paul says that Timothy shouldn't neglect this gift. So this is really the point. I, that was almost like an extended rabbit trail that you'll hopefully forgive. Because really what he's telling Timothy is, he says, don't neglect that gift that you received in ordination. He says, don't neglect it. Um, another term for what Paul is calling for here might be personal development, right? He's, he's telling him, in other words, he needs to be studying on his own. He needs to be praying on his own. He needs to be growing on his own. Not everything that a pastor does should be for the sake of the sermon. Uh, in some ways, you know, pastors need to have their own 
practice of routine enrichment so that when their own heart and mind is being flexed and strengthened, they'll be, they'll be ready and they'll be fuller individuals and ready to preach the word. Uh, I try to do this. I try to do this in a few ways. I, I try to do daily reading of scripture in a, in a routine way that follows a pattern. I try to be reading something new, something outside my comfort zone. Uh, I try reading challenging theological works that I will probably never quote in the pulpit. Um, I belong to a book group with other pastors where we read difficult books and discuss them each month and we work through their contents. Uh, I love talking with all of you about what you've been reading lately. Uh, One of the things I try to do is I try to do what Paul says here. I try to uh, make sure not to neglect this gift by making sure that I am thinking and reading and growing as a individual Christian, just, just like you're all supposed to be doing. Um, my whole life shouldn't be about sermon preparation. Um, I try to stay spiritually vital by God's grace. Some of you have told me that you pray for me. I genuinely believe that that has been a key in my life. I think it's been something that's been really important into my, in my life. Um, I hope that these practices are one way I can do what Paul says I need you guys to keep me accountable. I love when you guys ask me, what are you reading in scripture? I love when you ask me, what books are you reading? Uh, Because believe it or not, that's actually not coming out usually from the pulpit. Um, And Paul says, don't neglect the gift that God granted to you in ordination. By your prayers uh, and by your own encouragements, the Lord has been doing that in my own life. Pastors are called to be devoted to service to serving the church by developing the gifts God's given them in ordination. Now, third, Paul says Timothy should be devoted to scrupulosity. He's supposed to be scrupulous. He's supposed to be careful. He's supposed to be focused. Look at how he concludes here in verse 16. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So this relates to with what was spoken of in the last section. I don't want to retread that ground. But a pastor is supposed to be scrupulous about his own spiritual life. We're supposed to work hard and labor hard to see the grace of Jesus grow in our own life. And Paul already mentioned that Timothy shouldn't neglect his spiritual life. Here's, here's the flip side of that. The implication here is someone can neglect their spiritual life. Someone can neglect the gifts that they have. Um, they can neglect what matters most. We can get caught up in things. We can get distracted. We can get tempted. We can maybe even cool in our love for the truly important and weighty things. And, and by the way, here is where we, um, I want you to remember this. This is not just a temptation for pastors. This is a temptation for all Christians. It can be a temptation for all church members to waver in your devotion and your love of Jesus. So we are all beset by weaknesses, and we're all beset by temptations, aren't we? How, how easy is it for us in our busyness, in our everyday lives, to look, look at our phones when we should be looking at God's Word? Unless you have God's Word on your phone, in which case it's okay, I won't judge you. Um, I had one day where I was like looking at my daughter, and I was like, why are you looking at your phone so much? She's like, Bible app. <laughs> All right, I'll stop judging all those people. Um, But the the, the temptation is there, right? Forget about your soul. 
right? People forget their soul is as important as their body. We get so caught up in our bodies. We think we forget that we have souls. And I think Paul would say the same thing. He says to Timothy, keep a close watch, close watch on yourself. We're not far into this new year. Here we are to the month of the month of March. How are you keeping a close watch on your soul? You started out January very strong. I see it in your eyes. You had a fire. You had a, a, fl- a white flame coming out of your eyes. Uh, now it's March. How are you doing? Right? Uh, the pastor's called to watch out for his own soul. You're called to watch out for your own soul as well. Your pastor can't live your spiritual life for you. Your parents, teenagers, can't, can't live your spiritual life for you. Uh, you're called to live these things. You are called to and still responsible to do so. Uh, we all stand before the judgment seat of God. Have you made your spiritual life a priority? Are you keeping a close watch? That's Paul's word here. Are you keeping a close watch? Even as you're learning in the power of Christ to keep a closer watch on Jesus. Now, here's the real question. In fact, I struggled even coming in here. I thought, I'm going to talk all about myself this morning. I don't like this very much. Uh, I mean, there's probably an egotistical part of me that likes it. Uh, but I don't really relish the idea of coming in. You know what I really like doing? I like coming in here and talking about Jesus and having you forget about Adam. So why, why are we doing this today? Why not just get to this text and go, hey, this next text is just for me. <laughs> not going to read it to you guys today. We're just going to move on. I think you would all think that was very strange. And, and, and I think it's because Paul wrote this letter and the church at large has appreciated this letter for centuries. It was, it was written for Timothy, but it was written for all of us to listen in on. It was written for all Christians to hear what he was going to say to this other pastor. It was written for members to hear. It was written for ruling elders to hear. It was written for deacons to hear. It, it was written so that all of you could know just how important the preaching of the word is and what a high priority it should be for all of us. See, what this text does is it it speaks in a unique way for pastors, but it still speaks for the whole church, whether you're a pastor or not, because it's not just that church members need to be instructed in the expectations of the pastors. It's that pastors genuinely need encouragement from the church. And what, what what they really need from the church is for you to be pushing them exactly where God designs for them to be pushed. I know a lot of pastors who nearly every week they're cornered by church members who want to, uh, don't seem to know what the pastor is really supposed to do or what he's really supposed to be focusing on. And so whereas he's being pushed over here by the Lord, the congregation is saying, go over here. Why aren't you going over here? And then he's saying, well, I, I got to do this. And they're saying, get over here. And this happens a lot. And I think part of it is, I think it tells us that a passage like this is needed in the church today. So if you don't teach a text like this that talks to pastors and about what they're supposed to do, if we just talk about the things that we only think directly relate to the members, then I think in the long run, you deprive the church of instruction in what a pastor is and what a pastor does and what a pastor should be aiming at. And so then you have a congregation that doesn't understand what a pastor is supposed to be doing and supposed to be aiming at and supposed to be focusing on. And so, so you as a church need to listen in on a conversation like this because you actually are a part of executing on it. You're a part of making sure that it happens. See, God has all these things. He has all these blessings for us. He's a God who, who knows what we need most. He, 
He knows what we need. And so let's trust that and let's rejoice in that and let's embrace God's plan for how he will care for us and how he's going to feed us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, elders are a gift to your church. Ruling elders and teaching elders alike. Pastors, in other words. Even ruling elders in the church are pastors. And so I pray, oh God, that you would help the elders of this church, help the members of this church, help those in this church who are pastors, Lord. Pastor Hopkins and myself in this case, help us to remember what you call your officers to. You call us to fervently and joyfully follow after you. You call us to love and pursue you personally. And, you, and then you call us to labor in your word because that's where you've decreed to feed your church from, O oh Lord. You feed us from your word. So make us attentive to it. Help all of your people, members and officers alike, to keep a close watch on our lives, especially our souls. Keep us near to the heart of Jesus with a gospel eye on Christ himself. In whose name we pray, amen.